from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow at the Center for European Reform. And this year I'm recording not from the London offices of the CER, but from Ditchley Park, because every year the Center for European Reform takes around 50 of Europe's top economists, policymakers and commentators to the Ditchley Park to discuss the great European questions of our time. This year, the conference title is about as ambitious as it gets, how to save the EU. And we've heard the first panel, who is opposed to the EU and why. And I am in conversation, therefore, with Anand Menon and Yasha Munk. Anand Menon is Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London. He directs the Economic and Social Research Council Initiative, the UK in the Changing Europe. Professor Brexit, Anand, welcome to the podcast. Professor Brexit, Anand. <laughs> <laughs> and Yasha Munk is a lecturer on government at Harvard University, a senior fellow in the Political Reform Program at New America, and also an executive director at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Welcome, Yasha. Thank you so much. So who is opposed to the EU and why? What I do not want to do in this podcast is talk about the distinction between cultural motivators for populism and <laughs> economic motivators for populism, because whenever you ask social scientists uh, either or question, they will tell you that it's something in between. It's because it's true. That's not getting us anywhere. <laughs> <messy> <laughs> or they will say that the question is wrong in the first place, which is sure what you will do. That's true um, as well. What I do want to get to in the end is what should the EU represent to those who reject it now? Should it be about wealth and jobs? So is the loss of confidence of Eurosceptics largely a product of weak economic growth and hence might go away with economic recovery? Or should the EU be about liberal values and open borders if Euroscepticism is a rejection of that and a desire for greater protectionism and national control? Can it be solved with a Europe qui protège? Before that, though, because this is a sort of diagnosis session of the problem, I wanted to ask you if you could create for me a typology of Eurosceptics. Should we talk about them in a national context, different national types, in a social economic context, in a demographic context, or is it about political orientation? Which category should we use when we talk about different types of Eurosceptics? That's a great question, which is far too difficult to start off a podcast. I think the best way of thinking about this probably is not different types of Eurosceptics, but different drivers of Euroscepticism that then are going to sort of in each individual be mixed in a different way. And each country is going to have a different predominant mix of those influences. So some of those are straightforwardly the same drivers that you have uh, for populism in general, because we're talking about Euroscepticism. There are non-populist reasons to be Euroskeptic, but by and large as a public phenomenon, Euroscepticism is a populist phenomenon. And so I do think that the experience of economic stagnation and fear for your own economic future is one big driver of it. I do think rejection of Europe's slow transition from being a mono-ethnic to a multi-ethnic set of countries, and therefore a rejection that we should keep having people come into our countries, a rejection where we should change our idea, not just of what it is to be European, to include Muslims and so on, but also what it is to be German or Italian or French or British, is a big driver of it. And then I think you have a set of things that are bit more specific to the European Union. So one thing is a distrust of national governments. I think the more distrustful you are of politics and political elites in general, the more distrustful you are of the European Union. But then there's a weird inverse thing, where in countries in which people have reason to believe that their national political elites 
are really corrupt. And actually, they may be more corrupt than the European Union. They may actually become a little bit more friendly to the European Union. So I think you see strong populism in countries like Poland or Hungary, and yet people aren't necessarily that Eurosceptic because they think, you know what, perhaps it's not bad to have a counterweight to our governments there. At the same time, you have the inverse phenomenon when it comes to the experience of political domination. So countries that were part of a Warsaw Pact, that had experienced Soviet domination, are much more resentful of giving up national sovereignty. So I think you have all of those different things, and then what you get is different mixes of Euroscepticism. So you get Euroscepticism in Poland, which actually likes the idea of the European Union in certain kinds of ways, but is really resentful when the European Union wants to have more and more integration because it's very skeptical about giving up too much sovereignty and is absolutely opposed to the idea that the European Union should deal with issues like migration and so on because they say, you know, that has to remain under our national control because we're absolutely not okay with having a multi-ethnic conception of what it is to be Polish. But you might also get, you know, a Greek Euroscepticism, which is much more about the experience of economic stagnation and the ways in which the Euro crisis has helped to cause that. So if we always get a mix of different driving factors for Euroscepticism, I think that was certainly true in my view in the UK case, in the Brexit case, where we seem to have a coalition of little Englanders and imperialists and those opposed to immigration and those who were in favor of FTAs all over the world. And, and what makes British Euroscepticism different from other countries' Euroscepticism? Well, what is interesting in this country, and one of the things that the Leave campaign did very, very well here, is unite two opposing visions and two contradictory visions of Euroscepticism. Because, of course, the kind of Euroscepticism you associate with, if you'll forgive me saying so, Jeremy Corbyn, which is the Euroscepticism of the left, is very, very different to the Euroscepticism of the Jacob Rees-Mogg. And yet all those people managed to unite by virtue of not defining their endpoints behind a common goal. Now, of course, the stage two of this debate is figuring out what Euroscepticism really meant. And I think that's why the cracks are appearing. And, and that is something that I think a lot of Euroscepticism has in common, right? I mean, populists want to say, political leads always tell you that everything is complicated, and that's why they're failing. But that's not mm. true, right? Political leads are failing because they're self-serving, they're corrupt, they're incompetent, they're distant from the people. And so all it needs is for us to get into power. We have the simple solutions because we listen to the people, and everything is going to be fixed, right? And What the vision of that better future looks like is very different from Jeremy Corbyn than it is for somebody who's sort of on the uh, Eurosceptic right. But actually, um, it's generally deliberately incredibly ambiguous from everyone. Yes, that's right. <laughs> both of them actually not only are they far apart, but they're both quite vague in, in the yeah. precise way that they're far apart. If it's about a rejection of national elites in the first place, is there anything that the EU can do? against Euroscepticism, if this is about dissatisfaction of voters with their own governments? Anand. Well, as Yasha said, that, that plays out in two ways, doesn't it? In some cases, in Britain with the Brexit vote, and in other countries as well, the unpopularity of national political elites feeds into opposition to the European Union. But it has, of course, been the case, and it still is in some countries, that dissatisfaction with national politicians can translate into support for the European Union because people will say, like they used to say in, in Italy quite frequently in the 1990s, you know, anywhere but Rome. We want to be governed, but we don't trust the people in Rome because they're corrupt, they're inefficient, and they won't get it done. So it, again, it's a complex picture that varies by state. But the EU has no agency in whether it leads to rejection or it leads to support. I, I don't think it's, it has all the agency or it has no agency, right? I mean, if national governments do a terrible job for the next 20 years, not only 
do I believe that the EU is going to collapse or something global democracy is going to end, right? So if you have the best set of politicians in Brussels and they are brilliant and they do all the right things, but the national governments screw up time after mm-hmm. time, yes, you're not going to be able to save the European Union. Now, assuming that national governments don't completely screw up all of the time, there's still a lot of room for agency from the European Union. There's still things that the EU can do to make itself more or less of a target of that populist energy. I mean, for me, one of the big issues about the European Union isn't a lack of agency, because Lord alone knows that the EU does a lot now, but a lack of voice. And that's to say, unlike Mm. in most federal systems, you do not hear the EU level. I mean, there isn't an EU level media in the same way that in the States you have local newspapers, state newspapers and national media. And so you don't hear the EU in these debates. So the EU is quite passive, which means that it's very, very easy for populists to exploit it. So I wonder whether the EU would be well advised to be more visible or not. And I think in some ways, obviously, the EU does lots of good things that aren't attributed to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go on holiday and you pay less on your mobile phone roaming charges, that's because of the EU, right? I mean, there's actually all kinds of ways in which in our daily life, the EU does a lot of good things for us. As the sheer complexity of Brexit demonstrates, mm-hmm. right? Um, but on the other hand, I think, you know, most Europeans are actually in favor of the European Union outside of Britain, certainly. But their support is quite weak because they don't actually know that much about it. And they sort of like actually the status quo of things like freedom of movement by and large. I wonder that if we really had a European level public debate and things that the EU does really became politicized in a deep way and you could have populist entrepreneurs saying, well, all of that is terrible, and so on. It's not clear to me that I would expect support for EU to go up rather than down. Well, no, indeed. I mean, I'd say two things about the sort of European voice. The first is that when the European Union does try and do communications, it tends to do something pretty much akin to a Monty Python sketch when it screws <laughs> it up. I mean, DG communication has never been the most successful part of the European Commission, and I've never been quite sure why, but that just seems to be the case. The second is, insofar as there is a voice in Europe, what is it? It's the Financial Times, but that tends to play into the stereotypes that this mm. is the rootless transnational elite who are making money on the back of everyone else. Uh, and I don't know how you solve this situation, but at the moment, the dominance of national media, of national political voices, is a structural weakness that the EU just has to contend with. So when we talk about a voice for Europe and a vision for Europe, the man that we have to talk about at the moment is Emmanuel Macron, who has laid out his vision for Europe and who's asking for more political imagination, who's asking for more European-level debate. I mean, I have to say, I thought the speech was dreadful. I thought, given the state of contemporary France, given the state of politics in France, it was about as bad as it could be. Firstly, he, he goes to the Sorbonne to do it. Secondly, he goes on for, I mean, I remember printing it out and thinking, oh my God, I've run out of paper. I mean, it was such a long speech. Absolutely. He talks about things like institutional tinkering in the EU and let's build a few more universities. It was almost a speech designed to exacerbate the profound divisions in French society that I was rather hoping he was going to address and try to fix. There's two problems with it, I think. One is the set of problems we outlined. I'm all in favor of a European university. I think it's absurd that Europe doesn't, outside Britain, have true world-class universities. It's not going to solve the deep problems of the EU, right? But, but I think that points to a deeper problem, which is that the solution to the EU's problem is having more of the EU, mm, which absolutely. is the standard assumption of French and German politicians. And I don't think it grapples with a very real paradox when I face in the European Union. The way that I think of that is that European Union is quite popular because most of the things it does actually are quite popular. Outside of Britain, freedom of movement is very popular, for mm-hmm. example. People would be very sad to lose it. But we also have a euro, which people would be happy with if they could keep it working in the way it is. 
but every serious economist thinks that we cannot in the long run keep it working in the way it is. And so either we have to disband in the euro, and there's absolutely no idea about how to do that without mild economic catastrophe ranging to crazy economic catastrophe. So to fix it, we have to have more of the kinds of European institutions that people really don't want, like a lot more fiscal unity. And that, I think, is the bizarre paradox of European Union at the moment. But actually, if you could just be at steady state, and you could tell people, by the way, that we are at steady state and there's not going to be ever closer union, we don't have to be afraid about giving up more and more and more sovereignty to the EU, I think you'd fix the problems of the EU immediately. Except that that doesn't work because eventually the euro is going to crash unless we do have more integration. I think the European Union, and with all due respect to Andy Moravchik, who used to argue exactly the opposite, is almost a definition of an unstable equilibrium. To fix the euro, to fix the question of borders and migration, you either need to retreat or you need to push on forward. But both involve massive problems. And so you're, you're kind of marooned in this situation. And for all Macron's fine words, pushing forward requires agreement on the substance. And I still don't detect much in the way of that between the French and the Germans, let alone when you include, as he to date has failed to do rather sadly, the other member states who also have a voice and who also have a vote and who are, I, I think, actually even more suspicious now they've seen this sort of re-emergence of this Franco-German double act about the dangers of these of two countries. Yeah. And if you are going to push forward, I'm not sure there is a way you can manage pushing forward, but if you are going to push forward, I think it has to be done in a way where you're saying, look, basically we're happy with what, where the EU is at. To, to make that unstable equilibrium stable, we have to push forward in these two or three things. But we're trying to push forward as narrowly as possible in order to solve a problem. And then, by the way, that's going to be it. Whereas everything about Macron's speech was a rhetoric of, let's push forward across all of the dimensions, where, where I agree with him. You know, if everybody had the same opinions as I did, I would be happy to push forward in all of those kinds of ways. Because I have no problem with those things, right? But, 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 but to propose the solution of pushing forward, not as a targeted, tailored intervention that can somehow try to address the deep dilemma that I outlined, but as a let's all be pro-Europeans and keep pushing forward ever more, we'll just put people off completely. But the problem is that targeted and tailored means a European fiscal policy. It's a big deal. I mean, it's not just, okay, we'll just do this of and we'll leave you alone. I mean, what they need to do is so massive and so democratically problematic as well, because of course... I agree. You know, there are, there are big implications to this, that it, it is very, very hard to see how they overcome that. I agree, but may actually not be a way of overcoming it. If you're going to try to overcome it, I think it needs to start from a recognition yeah. of a problem Agreed. and be as narrowly tailored as it can be. And I didn't see signs of that in this speech. <laughs> there may not be a way to overcome it is a terribly pessimistic end to this <laughs> podcast. And I do think that there is more here to talk about. But in the background, we did hear the gong calling us to the next panel. So we would have to talk about it outside the podcast. Anand Menon, Yasha Munk, thank you so much for being on here. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to the CER podcast, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And while you're there, please leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find us. And you can also let us know what you think on Twitter at CER underscore EU.